Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The layout of a tour bus is pretty standard. First, you have the driver's compartment. Behind that is an area where everybody can hang out. A couple of tables, some seating, a fridge, a stove, probably a microwave, and an audiovisual system that can be hooked up to a big screen TV. Next is a hallway lined with some sleeping bunks, usually about three per side. After that, it's a bathroom and maybe some shower facilities. And then finally, we come to the rear bedroom. And here you'll find a double bed, more seating, probably another TV, and a few more amenities. Sometime on December 3rd, 2015, Scott Weiland entered the back bedroom on his tour bus, which was parked outside a Country Inn and Suites hotel northwest of Minneapolis. He wanted to rest out before that night's show at the Medina Ballroom. He never came out alive. After 8 o'clock that evening, police were called. There were reports of an unresponsive male, perhaps suffering from an overdose. It was Wyland, and by the time help arrived, he was long dead. The fact that Scott Wyland had died really honestly wasn't the biggest surprise. It was that he had managed to live to 48. The man lived, and let's be charitable here, a very colorful life. Unfortunately, Those colors were almost always very, very dark. And he was well aware of it. This is a guy who published an autobiography under the title Not Dead Yet and Not For Sale. The first ever Stone Temple Pilots single was called Dead and Bloated, which features the lines, I am smelling like the rose that someone gave me on my birthday deathbed. Scott was always well aware that he wasn't living the safest kind of life. At the same time, though, Scott Weiland was one of the great voices to emerge out of the 1990s. He was up there with Kurt Cobain and Lane Staley and Eddie Vedder. But who was he? And how did it eventually come to end in the back of a tour bus in snowy Minnesota? Well, let's do what we can to find out. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Stone Temple Pilots performing for MTV with an unplugged episode broadcast on November 17th, 1993. That, by the way, was one day before Nirvana set up in the same studio to record their famous unplugged performance. And interestingly enough, both STP and Nirvana chose to cover semi-obscure songs by David Bowie as part of their sets. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. When he was on, Scott Weiland was one of the most powerful and most charismatic frontmen I've ever seen. Armed with a microphone, the clothes on his back, and style, this guy could command a stage and grab your attention and not let go. He was a fantastic performer. He was also a hell of a songwriter. And I'm not just talking about what he did with STP and Velvet Revolver. His solo records may not have been commercial successes, but they showed the depth of his musical talents. And we will get into some of that music later. But much of Scott's life was a soap opera, a dark one, a universe that was strange and stressful for everybody involved. There were health issues, family problems, alcohol, lots of drugs, plenty of rehab, legal issues, and plain bad luck. Yet, until that night on the tour bus, Wyland had more lives than a cat. 
we could call this the rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall and death of Scott Weiland. In fact, we probably should. Sit back. This is going to take a while. Let's start with some comments from Robert DeLeo and Robert Krentz from STP talking about their former bandmate, Scott Weiland. It's really a situation that is completely uncontrollable, and you really have to realize that, man. And there's also that fine line in somebody with this sort of illness. I hate f***ing talking about this anymore, but I'm just going to say this. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, somebody with this type of illness, man, you really got to know when to say I'm helping him and then when to say, you know what, I got to back away because I'm just enabling him. Yeah, I think I, I think one of the things that we've all realized is that there's two different people there sometimes. You know, there's Scott and there's someone who's, you yeah. know, in a, in a whirlwind, you know, and, and I think we've made it clear. It, it, it's really, it really would be great if we could do more touring, making more records. I wish we were on our seventh record right now, you know? And and it, it feels like we've we've made it clear to Scott, we've made it clear here that, you know, we're not gonna be working under those circumstances. And that's that's a that's a step we made, you know, years ago. I think we made it clear a while back that, you know, we're not gonna be dealing with that side of him or that person we want to we want to deal with scott and deal with him sober and and that's how we choose to you know conduct our art so to speak Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots with Sex Type Thing from their 1992 debut album, Core. Scott was born in San Jose, California. He was Scott Richard Klein back then. His dad, Kent, drove a Pepsi truck by day and smoked a lot of dope by night. His mother, Sharon, divorced Kent when Scott was 12. When she remarried David Weiland a year later, David formally adopted Scott and Scott took his last name. When he was five, the family moved to a place called Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Yeah, Chagrin Falls. With his stepdad working at TRW Space and Electronics, a company associated with defense contractor Lockheed Martin, the family was very middle class. In school, Wyland was a pretty good student, despite being diagnosed with ADHD. His big things, though, were sports and music. In fact, he remembers telling his mom when he was eight years old that he was going to be both a rock star and a millionaire. He had a younger brother named Michael, both of them got into alcohol and drugs very early, often raiding the liquor cabinets of their friends' parents. And it didn't help that dad was very tolerant and mom secretly became an alcoholic herself, often keeping a bottle of vodka in her purse. Not exactly the kind of people to supervise these kids. Wyland managed to become the starting quarterback of his high school's football team and one of the school's better wrestlers. But there was more darkness. The son his biological dad adopted when he remarried was hit by a car while riding his bike. Then Wyland says an older, bigger boy raped him after school one day. After a stint in Cleveland, the family moved west to Huntington Beach, California. That's an area of Orange County that sits right on the Pacific Ocean, just south of Los Angeles. 
It was 1982, and Scott was 14. Music became his escape, especially after a football injury forced him to sit out much of a season. His favorite bands included Depeche Mode and The Clash and Social Distortion. He liked The Sweet and Echo and the Bunnymen and Queen. He began wearing mascara, dressing in black, and got deeper into various types of drugs. He and his friend Corey Hickok started cutting school to smoke dope and to play in an art rock type band that was first called Awkward Positions, which was led by Corey's older brother. That inspired Scott to form his own post-punk band that he called Soy Descent, which translated means a style of one's own. Remember, Scott was a Depeche Mode fan, and if they could have a French name, so could his band. They did record a demo called Gopher Baroque, but it seems to have disappeared entirely. And the band also began playing some regular gigs around Orange County. But then his stepdad found out that Scott was doing coke at age 16. The blow-up that followed resulted in Scott being committed to a mental hospital for three months. You see what I mean about this story being dark? Scott Weiland and Stone Temple Pilots with Vaseline, a song from their second album, Purple. That was 1994. More of Scott's story coming up. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. After a stint in college, Scott Weiland ended up in Los Angeles working as a graphic paste-up artist for a legal publication called Los Angeles Daily Journal. He was with a girl named Mary Ann, who once got so mad with Scott that she set his car on fire. In 1986, Wyland met Robert DeLeo at a Black Flag concert. Robert had just graduated from high school in New Jersey and really didn't know what to do next. So he moved to California with his bass and his amp and spent a lot of time sitting on the beach and sleeping in his 1976 Volkswagen Rabbit. It was kind of weird how Scott and Robert met. They discovered that they were sleeping with the same girl. But instead of getting into a fight, and after said woman moved to Texas, they became friends. And from there, Scott brought his band around to Robert's apartment, where he had a small 8-track studio. Robert's brother, Dean, who was one of seven other kids in the DeLeo family, mom went through four marriages, you see, he went backpacking around Europe and skiing in Austria before he joined his brother on the West Coast. He married his high school sweetheart and had a pretty good business going as a manager at a construction supply warehouse. Both Robert and Dean had played in a cover band called Tyrus, but neither of them had any serious ideas about a career in music. Robert played bass on some of Scott's demos, and he and Scott and Robert started hanging together more, going to as many shows as they possibly could. One night, they ran into drummer Eric Krentz, who was playing for a going-nowhere band, and they asked him if he would be interested in joining their new group, and Eric said yes. All of them started writing songs together, all while working basic day jobs, and Wyon maybe had the best of the bunch. It was his job to drive models to fashion shoots and casting calls. It paid eight bucks an hour, but he spent all day hanging out with beautiful women. Dean DeLeo wasn't much interested in being in a band at all, but he did help his brother and Scott and Eric get a bunch of gigs in San Diego, which is where the misconception of STP being a San Diego band started. Scott and Robert kept hounding Dean to join the band, and eventually he did give in. And that was the beginning of Stone Temple Pilots. Well, almost. At this point, the group was known as Mighty Joe Young, after the character in that gorilla movie from the 1940s. Their first gig was in August of 1990 at the Whiskey on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. And they sounded like this. I'm being shattered, I'm being shattered. 
That's Mighty Joe Young from about 1990 with a song called Only Dying. This band worked out their chops by playing gig after gig for about two years, eventually drawing a couple hundred people on their own, which led to opening slots for bands like Soul Asylum and the Rollins Band. It took them a while to figure out their sound, too. Now, you got to remember that this is the late 1980s. Hair metal was big, and grunge was still a few years away. And Robert DeLeo was a big fan of Flea and the funkiness of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who were finally starting to do well. And that explains this Mighty Joe Young song. It's hard to believe that that band would evolve into the Stone Temple Pilots, isn't it? That's pre-STP, Mighty Joe Young, with a demo called Dirty Dog. But there was other, much better stuff. The agent who saw the band play tipped off Atlantic Records, who came down to see the group play a bunch of times. And after a show at a place called the Shamrock in Silver Lake, an offer was made. And on April 1st, 1992, April Fool's Day, Mighty Joe Young signed their major label deal. They were hustled into the studio and quickly recorded a debut album. But just two days before they were scheduled to hand everything over to the label, they got a call from their lawyer. There was a problem. An old Chicago blues singer named Joe Young objected to the band using the name Mighty Joe Young because that's a name he used to use. So the group would have to find another name. After two weeks of racking their brains, they came up with Stone Temple Pilots. Now, before you ask, that means absolutely nothing. Scott had what he called a shrine at the place where he lived with Dean DeLeo. And at the center of it was an old STP oil treatment can. It gave him some kind of comfort because he used to have an STP sticker on his bicycle as a kid. He used to pretend that he was NASCAR driver Richard Petty, who had STP as a sponsor. Now, the initials were cool. But everyone knew they would be asked what the letters stood for, lest the oil treatment people come after them with their lawyers. From there, it was just a matter of matching up words to the letters. And out of many possible combinations, some of which were rather obscene, Stone Temple Pilots just sounded the best while everybody was drunk and stoned. So that's basically why it won. Finally, the album was ready. The debut was called Core, and the date was September 29, 1992. The big song was something that Robert DeLeo wrote back in 1989. From the fall of 1992, right as alternative rock was taking over the mainstream, that Stone Temple Pilots and Plush, a huge commercial success, 10 million copies sold around the world. But it was also a big critical flop. When most people first heard the song, they were quick to categorize STP as a grunge band, or worse, a blatant Pearl Jam ripoff. Others thought that STP was a metal band, especially after hearing songs like Sex Type Thing. Scott Wallen hated that. He felt that anyone who compared him and his sense of fashion and the way Eddie Vedder looked and acted and carried himself, the differences would be obvious. There was certainly no flannel in Scott's wardrobe. In fact, to counter these criticisms, Scott adopted more of a performance art aspect to his stagecraft. So, dresses, lipstick, mascara, more flamboyance? 
Absolutely, no problem. More on the Stone Temple Pilots era of Scott Weiland, the first era, coming right up. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is part one of a program on the many rises and many falls of Scott Weiland. STP is one album deep into the career and are already selling millions of records. And while Weiland is still holding it together, things are about to go very wrong again. The first STP tour lasted 14 months. A stint as an opener for Megadeth led to an offer to open for Aerosmith, but that is not what they wanted. They didn't consider themselves in the same genre as Aerosmith. Remember, this is the early 90s, the alternative 90s. So they turned that opportunity down in favor of a tour with, wait for it, the Butthole Surfers. That was June and July of 1993. Now here's where the problems really begin. It was during that tour that Scott bonded with surfer singer Gibby Haynes, and it's alleged that this is when Gibby introduced Scott to heroin. Scott would later claim that he first tried heroin in New York, and the date was August 4, 1993, after a show at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City. Now that Scott Weiland had been introduced to Smack, his already weird world was about to get a whole lot weirder. Wicked Garden, another track from STP's debut album, Core. Scott Weiland said the song is all about losing your innocence and purity. And as the band was performing that song on their first major tour, heroin was taking hold on Weiland's life. And from then on, it would never really let go. Let me quote you something from Weiland's autobiography. The truth is that I loved heroin culture. I was intrigued by it. I had a friend in high school who was a junkie. I love the work of William S. Burroughs and the brilliance of Charlie Parker. I love the aesthetic of the Rolling Stones. I know about John Lennon's heroin period. In the mid-80s, I had been greatly influenced by Perry Farrell and Jane's addiction. I associated heroin with romance, glamour, danger, and rock and roll excess. More than that, I was curious about the connection between heroin and creativity. At that point, I couldn't imagine my life, especially now that I was entering into the major leagues of alternative rock, without at least dabbling with the king of drugs. So, I put in my order. The thing about heroin, at least for me, was that I used to be afraid or ultra-self-conscious when I walked into a bar or club. But on dope, I could be Superman or any man. I didn't care what anyone thought of me. Dope was my savior, the ultimate equalizer. Or so I thought. Back with a look ahead to part two in just a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. We're already an hour into our recounting of the life and career of Scott Weiland, and we've only made it as far as the first Stone Temple Pilots album. We still have to cover the original STP era, the breakups, the reunions, the ultimate firing. There were Scott's solo albums, and of course, the whole Velvet Revolver story, which began so brilliantly and ended in such a debacle. 
thanks almost entirely to Scott. And finally, there's Scott's last band, The Wildabouts, and his death on that tour bus. In other words, we have an awful lot to talk about yet. Join me next time for part two of all the risings and fallings of Scott Wyland. Meanwhile, check me out at my website at ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Get the newsletter. It's free, and you'll have all your music news in your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern every weekday. And watch for me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always email me at alanandalancross.ca. I promise to get right back to you on whatever it is that you need. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 